I've entitled the message this morning, Jesus, You Rock. When Jeremy announced that he was taking a three-month sabbatical and the elders were to uh, fill in the pulpit while he was gone, I mentioned to Pete that I'd be willing to help fill in the pulpit. I am not an elder, but I am an older in the congregation. Amen, yes, and all that means is that there's a greater probability that I will be in heaven before most of you. And as my grandchildren would say, when they have something that they think some sibling we want is, na-na-na-na-boo-boo, I'll get to heaven before you do. And I hope Jesus doesn't take away one of my crowns, but a little taunt. And I apologize to Matt and Justin, who I sent my sermon text to. I think I forgot to include the bad jokes. <laughs> and you can tell I'm still a kid at heart, even though I am older. All right. So the elders did okay in my time in the pulpit. So, okay, now what do you do? How do you tackle the book of Psalms, much less choose a topic to preach on? In my travels to the West Coast, I decided to listen to the Psalms. One word that started to resonate in my mind as I listened to the Psalms was the word rock. That brought back a childhood memory on a Sunday school class <clears throat> on a lesson about the children of Israel in the wilderness and Moses striking the rock to bring about water. I also remember another incident in which Moses strikes the rock twice and God punishes him and doesn't allow him to go into the promised land. It didn't seem fair to me in my mind to Moses. I couldn't see what the big difference was, and my Sunday school teacher couldn't explain it either. So in my travels, I heard Psalm 95, and I thought, here's my topic. There's two parts to this psalm. So I'm going to read the first part again, the first seven verses. And it says, Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, and his hand, great God and the king, great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands form the dry ground. Oh, let us come, worship, and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So when you hear that, it's a great uh, call to worship, a wonderful call to worship. The first part of this psalm starts with how we are to worship God. God loves our singing and singing in community with one another. Because it says, let us sing to the Lord. The first point is to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It's an attitude that we need to bring to worship. We decide how to come to God. If we come grumbling, ungrateful, tired, or bored, we're not worshiping God. There is a time when we can bring our troubles and our sorrows and our disappointments to God. But in worship, we need to come with a joyful attitude. We need to come to him with thanksgiving. 
If someone saved your life from a tragic calamity, you would be grateful from the bottom of your heart. God has saved you for an eternity, not just a few short years. God saved you from a hell that you and I don't want to be in. We need to be thankful when we worship him. We also need to recognize who he is. He's greater than anything we can imagine. We need to be in awe of him. Mountains inspire us. We marvel at the ocean and its creatures. We are amazed at the diversity on, of the animals on the earth. The universe, we can barely grasp its immensity. The splendor of his creation amazes us. He made it. He deserves glory. We need to come in humbleness. We're instructed to bow down and kneel. That is reverence. That is respect. That is giving honor. So why should we? Because he made us. He is a God. He claimed us. He's watching over us as the sheep of his pasture, and he guides us with his hand. What intrigued me about this psalm initially was the use of rock of our salvation. Rock is repeatedly used in the psalms. Three of the messages given in the psalms already have had rock in the text. God many times is referred to a rock in the Old Testament. It's commonplace in the Old Testament when you hear the word rock, it is a reference to God. The majority of times, that is what it's referring to. So rock occurs 124 times in 112 verses in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 32, 18, we're told of the rock that begat thee. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, The Lord is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. 2 Samuel 22 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock. In him I will trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior, thus saves me from violence. Isaiah 26.4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. It should therefore be no surprise to us that in Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 18, after Peter states that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then Jesus pronounces that upon that rock I will build my church. He is referring to himself as that rock. This next passage in the book of, in this, in Psalms, verses uh, 8 through 11, It changes tune from a call to worship to a warning. So I'm going to read those last three verses. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who will go astray in your heart, And they have not known my ways, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, to understand what happened at Meribah Massa, we need to look at two more 
passages, and so keep this in mind. We're going to look at Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20. So the first one we'll take a look at is Exodus 17. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the Lord, people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In this passage, this is the first mention of the rock and the water that comes out of that rock. What does that rock represent? We're not left to guesswork or in our own speculation or our own wisdom. The Holy Spirit of God explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And now it tells us, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In the wanderings in, in the wilderness, the children of Israel, there were seven experiences in which God tests the Israelites in their wanderings in the wilderness. These experiences are also for us as well. Not just something to read about, they're experiences for us to learn from as well. All Christians will do well to read and heed these lessons. So chapter 10 of the first Corinthians talks about the lessons or the tests by the children of Israel in their 40-year wanderings. So 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our It's not just something from the Old Testament, it's something that we should learn from. So what is that we need to learn from them? So three of these experiences that God tests the children of Israel deal with water. The first instance, they are only three days into their journey into the promised land. They came to water, but it was bitter and they couldn't drink of it. They were able to carry some water with them from Egypt, but that would last only a few days and now, they need, now that water was gone. 
So what do you do? You would think that after seeing Moses perform all the plagues against Pharaoh, seeing Moses open and walking in through the Red Sea, they would come to Moses and say, what do we do now? How is the Lord going to provide water? God instructs Moses to throw a log into the water, and it was made sweet. There's a lesson there as well, but that's not my message this morning. In the second experience with water, God provides them water from a rock. And when we think of a rock, we think of a stone or something that's maybe a foot or a couple of feet around or whatever. But in this instance, that rock is defined as a large rock formation or a cliff. It's big. And this is the first time water comes from a rock, and this occurs only a short time after God provided manna to the children of Israel, because it says he provided manna on the 15th day of the second month, or 45 days after left Egypt. And this incident with the water is just a few days after God gave them manna. So let's take a look at some of the logistics of taking the children of Israel through the desert wilderness. Exodus 12:37 says there were 600,000 men, which means that there's anywhere from three to four million people when you count the women and children. The need for water this group or from this size would have been an immense problem. Their average water usage for a person in Minnesota is 50 gallons a day. If you take the children of Israel, 50 gallons times the uh, three or four million, that's 200 million gallons. That's 25,000 tanker trucks hauling 8,000 gallons each. And I don't think they had tanker trucks from Egypt coming in at that time. Their water usage would have been much less, and I'm going to say at the very bare minimum, it was two gallons a day. That's still 8 million gallons or 500 tanker trucks a day. An additional perspective is that let's take a lake five miles around. 5,280 feet times five miles is 26,400 feet. And if you give every person three feet to get water, using one million people, it would take 18 hours a day to get their daily fill. Now, that's a big problem to solve. If you had a river or a stream, you could accomplish that in two and a half miles. And if you had it longer, you could get that accomplished in a much less time. And we do get a hint of how God supplied water to the Israelites because they were in the wilderness for 40 years in the desert. From Psalms 105, 41, it says, he opened the rock and water gushed out and flowed through the desert like a river. Zechariah 14, 8, at the second coming of Christ, the Mount of Olives, when he comes to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will be split and a stream of water will flow east and west from the Mount of Olives. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, in the new heavens and in the earth, we see a river from the throne of God. Water coming from the rock, from the throne of God, is a common scenario mentioned in Scripture. So let's take a little bit closer look at uh, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. They complained instead of asking. That's the first thing. There was nothing wrong with the people asking for water, but there was a problem with the way they asked. They quarreled 
with Moses and demanded, give us water to drink. They weren't asking, they were demanding. Although Israelites probably thought they were only contending with Moses, he responded that they tested God. They were like children trying their parents' patience. Dennis Prager, besides being a well-known radio commentator, is also a Jewish rabbi. And he's written a commentary on the first five books called the Torah. And in his commentary on the Exodus, he says this about this certain section of the Torah. Again, he says, the Israelites seem to attribute miracles, this time it's in Exodus to Moses. This confusion of Moses with God will loom as a major theme in the Torah. It ultimately, as I will show, the reason Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. We have here more of the exaggerations and distortions that so often characterize chronic malcontents and complainers. Did these people really believe Moses took them out of Egypt to kill them? Of course not. But when complainers get angry, they often exercise no restraint over their tongues and say whatever mean-spirited thoughts come into their heads. What you can see today, we're just like them. So this first location was a rock at the foot of Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, in the area known as Fridim, shortly after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea during their escape from slavery into Egypt. Because the scripture says the Israelites camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Fearing they would die of thirst, they accused Moses of bringing them out of Egypt, only to kill them in the desert. Moses asked, why do you quarrel with me? Moses, in his response, is making it quite clear that he is not the source of the water. God is. Because he asked, why do you test the Lord for Nexus 17.2? So after all God has done for you, why do you continue to test him? Then he turned to God and said, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me from Exodus 17.4. God then commanded Moses to take some of the elders with him and go to the rock at Horeb and strike the rock with his staff. When Moses obeyed, water gushed forth. So let's look a little closer at this situation. Look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. This is a foreshadowing event. Many Old Testament historical events double as symbols of what God would do in the future through Christ. For example, God called Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham uttered these prophetic words in response to Isaac's question about a lamb. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering from Genesis 22.8. God did provide a ram in Isaac's place, symbolizing what he would do thousands of years later on that very same mountain when his own son was offered as a sacrifice in our place called Golgotha. Events surrounding the sacrifice of Isaac thus serve as a type of sacrifice of Christ. In this incidence, Moses striking the rock is much like the scenario of you standing for a judge, a judge who is up on his bench and you are pronounced guilty, but then Jesus steps down, stands before us, it's a punishment deserved by us 
and pronounces us forgiven. Jesus is the rock. He comes down from his place as authority, stands before us, and takes a strike of punishment we deserve. So verse 7 says, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So this next incident is from Numbers chapter 20. So if you turn to Numbers chapter 20, we'll take a look at that. This is 38 years later after the first incidents. They've been nearly 40 years in the desert. They're about ready to go into the promised land, and this happens. For Moses, this is a deja vu moment for him. So let's look at the second incidents in Romans uh, 20, uh, verses 2 through 3, or 2 through 13. And this is 38 years later. Later. Now there was no water for the congregation, and he assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt and bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went up from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them to drink, and to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff before the Lord, and he commanded them. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. So, again, I said this is 38 years later after that first incident, and the children of Israel are complaining again. This is a new generation. They're now on the eastern side of this, sort of nearing the Dead Sea. And when I was a kid growing up, hearing this message, the Dead Sea was only known as being sick. That's a joke. So in Numbers 20, verses uh, 2 through 6, Israel contends with Moses and Aaron because of thirst. And it says there is now no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And he said, we wish we would have perished with our brothers if only we had died 
prior to this, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness where we should die in our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It says no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the answer of the Lord and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So again, they've had water, but in this case, it's a test. How did they do? Well, there was, no, there was no water for the congregation, so the need was real, but the response of Israel was filled with unbelief and bad attitude, which always goes together. When you find a bad attitude, you will also find a lack of simple, secure trust in God. He says, if we had only died before the Lord, their contention led them to outrageous statements, words lacking any trust in God. The older generation of unbelief was almost dead, and now the younger generation started to act like the unbelieving generation. They openly doubted God's promise that he would lead them into the land of promise. Because he says, why have you brought us up from the congregation of the Lord to this wilderness where we should die? Their contentions led them to outrageous accusations. The new generation accuses Moses, just as the generation of unbelief did. And he said, it's not a place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Their contentions led them to a stunted vision. Of course, the wilderness was not a fruitful land, but they would never make it to the land rich in fruit until they came to the wilderness trusting God. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. They realized how serious this was. With this contentious attitude, the new generation would be just as unbelieving, just as untrusting in God as the old generation was, and they would likewise perish in the wilderness. So we have God's command to Moses. God told him, provide water for Israel. And the Lord told Moses, take your staff, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and the animals. So he's to take the staff, speak to the rock. Specifically, God told Moses, take the staff, but not use it. Water would be provided if Moses would speak to the rock, and it will yield its water. Back at Mount Sinai, God told Moses to strike the water, and water came. But now he was merely to speak to the rock, yet with his staff in his hand, and that staff was a symbol of God's authority. But now we see Moses has a contention with the people and with the Lord. In Numbers 9 through 20, it says, So Moses took the staff from before the Lord, and he commanded him, then Moses and Aaron gathered assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of the rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation and the livestock had water. So Moses took the staff. He commanded him, Moses started out doing exactly what the Lord told him to do. But now he's changed his tune a little bit. So he says, Hear now, you rebels. 
must we bring water for you out of this rock? God did not command Moses to speak to the nation and not to speak so severely to the nation, yet Moses did. Moses, after doing what God had told him to do, then did something God had told Adam to do. He lectured the nation. Worse, he lectured the nation with an attitude of art he had not shown before, one of anger and contempt for the people of God with a bitter heart, before Moses fell on his face before God and when the people rebelled. At Meribah, when the people contended with Moses because there was no water, Moses cried out to the Lord, not against the people. When the people did need to be boldly confronted, Moses did it, but not without the edge of anger that he shows here. He shows anger, he shows contempt and bitterness. Worse yet, Moses not only took the rebellion of the people against the Lord too personally, he also over-magnified his own partnership with God. Must we bring water for you out of the rock? Moses spoke as if he and God would do the job, as if they divided the work 50-50, as if God couldn't bring the water unless he was around to speak to the rock. His lapse into contempt for the people led him to a lapse of subtle pride. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Moses disobeyed God directly, striking the rock instead of speaking to it. Not only did he strike it, he struck it twice. When he struck the rock at the beginning of the Exodus journey, he only had to strike it once, but now out of anger and frustration, he did it twice. Moses ruined the foreshadowing event here. Christ came once and took the punishment once for all eternity. We don't need to crucify Christ again and again. He died once. He took our sins all. Romans 6.10 says, The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So despite Moses' sinful attitude and action, God still provided the water and provided it abundantly. Now in Numbers 20, verses 12 to 13, we see God's rebuke and correction of Moses. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself to be holy. One of the tragic moments of the Bible is where Moses is denied entrance to the promised land for his sin at the rock of Meribah. He led Israel faithfully for nearly 40 years. Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it and is condemned to die before living in the promised land. Numbers 20.12 makes it clear that the sin of Moses and Aaron was, you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Moses' harsh words toward the Israelites revealed his emotions in this moment. Moses is angry. Anger is not the sin, but his actions because of his anger is the sin. He classifies Israel as rebels rather than as a chosen people. And his rhetorical question seems to imply that he does not view Israel as worthy of God's grace any longer. This is the real failure of Moses in this moment. He's lost his faith in God to fulfill his promises to these people. 
Israel is a nation of rebels outside of grace, outside of God's ability to make a great nation, outside of the promises that God has given. And it seems nearly 40 years of dealing with this people has finally broken Moses. He is so overwhelmed in this moment that he has lost his faith in him. From God's perspective, Moses has lost faith in the Lord to overcome Israel's unfaithfulness. Moses has not believed in God and has not treated Yahweh as a holy God who is able to overcome the weaknesses of his people. Indeed, this is exactly what Numbers 20.12 says was Moses' sin. And they did not believe God and did not treat Yahweh as holy in that moment. Moses' lack of faith led him to forget the promises and covenant of God. God's promises will stand no matter how badly Israel fails to uphold it. This then is the main point that we should derive as well. The first one is, is that God will always keep his promises. We as heirs of the promise of Abraham and Israel should always firmly believe in the power of God to bring us a broken people like Israel to the shores of the promised land. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive his promises? You have to believe before you receive his promises. Don't delay. Don't harden your heart. Hebrews 4, verses 13 through 15 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In this passage, the sin we are warned about is not to harden our hearts. If you hear his voice, then do not harden your hearts. So several points to ponder here. Nothing is more offensive to God than disbelief of his promises and despair of the performance of it because of some difficulties that seem to get in the way. The more experiences we have in the power and goodness of God, the greater our sin if we distrust him. Hardness of heart is at the bottom of our distrust of God and quarrels with him. A hard heart will not receive the word of God, will not listen when it is heard, and are not convinced of the evil of sin or the danger of refusing salvation. Isaiah 26, 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for in the God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So there's a lot of important lessons we can learn from Moses, and this sin is one of them. Though Moses had fallen short of God's glory here, God forgave him. Yet the consequences of the sin were deeply distressing. So it was with David, so it was with Paul, so it was with Peter, and so will it be with us. We have all seen and know people who walk away from God. Things did not go right as they thought it should. Maybe it's the death of a child, death of a spouse, sickness, disease, stress of life, a wayward child, financial difficulties, you name what it is. Sometimes it's because of sin in our life, and other times it is God testing us. Second thing to remember out of this is that God will test us. How will we respond? Will we walk away, complaining and rebelling against God? Or will we recognize that God is in control and we need to trust Him? It's also a lesson on intercessory prayer, interceding on a person's behalf when they stumble. 
We need to hate sin, intercede on behalf of a person who is troubled, follow God's instruction, and let God handle the situation, believing that God is mighty enough and not lose faith. The third point out of this is that God is full of justice and mercy. Moses came under God's justice. He was not allowed, he was not allowed in the promised land. <clears throat> Moses was known as the most humble person on the face of the earth from Numbers 12.3. Hebrews 3.5 describes Moses as a faithful servant. And there's only five people in the Bible that are called that. Moses did receive mercy, though. Moses did come to the promised land in a transfiguration. And I also believe he is one of the two witnesses in the book of the Revelation that comes to Israel and bringing multitudes to Jesus Christ. God's love embraces both justice and mercy. He is a God of justice as well as abundant mercy. It is because of the divine attribute of justice that the penalty for our sins are transgressions of God's law that had to be paid. It is through divine mercy that Christ died for our sins, since the wages of sin is death. The sinless Christ suffered a cruel death in our place so that God of justice could also show his great mercy, thereby freely forgiving our sins so he could give us everlasting life. I kidded about being old. I am, but I'm not going to die. My soul is eternal and so is yours. I'm merely exchanging my earthly body for a heavenly one. I'll stand before God, and I will be guilty, deserving justice. So will you. Christ, for me, will step down and say, I paid his justice price, give him mercy, and I'll receive a new heavenly home. If you haven't believed on Christ as your Savior, you won't receive mercy you'll get justice. If you're not sure Christ will step down and claim you and receive mercy, talk to someone who can show you how to receive mercy from Jesus. God's made all the arrangements. He wants to grant you mercy. Will you let him?